a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, the battle for your mind is a real thing, and I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I am here to invite you to think more clearly and more independently about the world around us. So if you are a long-time wrong thinker or you're just uh, checking it out for the first time, I invite you to come and find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers and above all, to claim your heritage as a free individual. I've got some great sponsors who make this program possible. They include MonticelloCollege.org, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. There's a link in my show notes, which I publish each time I do an episode at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Easy access to each one of these sponsors, even if you just want to drop them a note and let them know, hey, I heard your message. And if the time is right, consider doing business with them. Well, where to begin today? I think we want to start with the. Uh, I think I'm gonna. I want to start with a, a little take on psychiatry and psychology, and not because I'm an expert in either one of these fields, but it's not uncommon to hear people describe the the current overlapping crises that we are working through and that we're seeing happen around us as being part of a massive psyop being orchestrated by the people in power. And on on the one hand, you have to admit. When you get fear into a population, they become a lot easier to manipulate, especially if it's fear of, a, of an enemy that they cannot see, you know, like a virus. Oh, you can't see this. Only our experts can tell you what's going on, and you have to do exactly as they say, or you will die. Now, I, I feel like I'm engaging in a little bit of hyperbole, and yet that's exactly the message that has been broadcast at us. 24-7 for the last 20 months. And I think most people are feeling the strain on their mental health. Look, I'm not proud, I'll tell you. There are times where I have to sit back and really, you know, center myself again and figure, okay, how am I doing today? The strain is, is so real, and it's not just, you know, if it was just a matter of financial strain, which it's becoming for some people, especially those being fired because they're not taking the vaccine, um, you know, that's one kind of stress. But this has cut across so many different layers of our lives. Well, you can go here, but you can't go there. You can work, but you can't. You have to wear this. You have to stand there. You have to travel in this direction down the grocery aisle. Oh, man, it's it's just endless. And, of course, this is to say nothing about the lockdowns and and the, the enforcement that followed. Did I really see police officers arresting people for singing hymns in a church parking lot last year? Absolutely. That was in Idaho, which is actually one of the places where, you know, people still take their freedom somewhat seriously. California, yeah, police were out ticketing people for sitting in their cars watching a sunset. How is this a legitimate use of authority? <laughs> I still can't get over the image of the guy on a paddleboard out there in the Pacific Ocean by himself. 
And here comes the police boat and two police boats. Oh, we're going to get him. And they sure enough, they arrested him and hauled him, hauled him off to jail. Why? Well, it was for his health and his safety. And this is to say nothing about what's going on in Australia, though we are going to talk about that later. And, and, and by the way, I want to just point out, I do have listeners in Australia. And I hear from them occasionally. I've gotten a couple of emails now. And uh, it's very telling when, when they say, please, if you talk about this on the air, do not use my name. That's the system that they are, are under right now. And, and if we think, well, it sucks to be them. No, that's what's coming your direction, too. If you're not careful. So courage to my brothers and my sisters in Australia, my fellow lovers of liberty. I'm sickened by what I see that uh, that you're having to put up with right now. I don't know how this all shakes out, but uh, no matter how, no matter how isolated or marginalized you may feel because, uh, you know, the authorities are telling you this and everybody's insisting you have to follow this regimen of what we say. You are in the right If you are standing for freedom, I don't care if you're standing alone. You're in the right. God smiles upon those who would stand for truth, especially when it's unpopular. And I'm sorry that there's suffering that goes along with that. But, you know, thanks to those of you who are doing your best to keep the faith in almost impossible conditions. I've got an article here from Robert Freudenthal that talks about how psychiatry is not enough to save us from lockdown harms. In fact, it might actually become a very useful tool for isolating the non-compliant. This was published by the Brownstone Institute. I don't know if you have uh, had the chance to look at their website or to subscribe, but uh, they really put out some very high-quality material, very well-sourced, principled, nonpartisan. This is not like, you know, sitting around getting caught up in an argument over the news cycle. There's actually substance here. Robert Freudenthal says, The mental health consequences of our pandemic response are predictable, with many warning right from the start of the likely psychiatric consequences of the withdrawing of of most of the structures of civic society for a period of months on end. He says, too often the priorities are framed as a balancing act between physical health consequences from the virus versus mental health consequences from the pandemic response, with little or no attention as to what psychiatric treatments actually consist of. And this has led to a focus on how overwhelmed psychiatric services are, but not on the details of what the psychiatric response actually has been or could be. Now, he points out the psychiatric system doesn't exist as a separate entity to the medical establishment. Rather, it's part and parcel of our healthcare system. Psychiatric services also function alongside and within institutional settings, be they psychiatric hospitals, care homes or prisons, smaller supported accommodation units. And despite an increased awareness of mental illness, he says there remains little understanding of the realities of life on psychiatric wards. Psychiatric services, particularly in inpatient settings, are places where the carceral realities of lockdown or of a lockdown and restriction-based approach are enacted in full force. Therefore, the full, the emotional distress, rather, of lockdown can be experienced in its extreme in those settings. And yet they're also looked to as a solution for some of the adverse effects of our pandemic response. He says mental health wards in the psychiatric system are one component 
of the carceral functions of the modern state. And people admitted to mental health wards are subject to significant deprivations of liberty and surveillance. Deprivations of liberty are nearly always enacted along lines of existing inequalities, and mental health wards are no different, with young black men being disproportionately represented among those who are detained on psychiatric wards. Robert Freudenthal says the lockdowns have represented a significant increase in the carceral functions of the state. And the deprivations of liberty that resulted from the lockdowns were enacted in a discriminatory fashion, such that those that already had the least liberty were restricted the hardest. Now, this is to be expected as government-driven deprivations of liberty were always likely to be most strongly enforced in those that the state already had the most control over which includes those that are in state-run institutions like psychiatric hospitals as well as people in other institutions such as prisons, care homes, and immigration detention centers. Now, this escalation of carceral-type policies on mental health wards during the lockdown was significant. We're talking practices like removing leave from the ward or restricting or removing visitors and solitary isolation for new admissions to mental health units. He says, furthermore, mandatory mask wearing and the consequent consequent removal of facial expressions made it harder for staff to de-escalate challenging scenarios on the ward, which may have contributed to an upsurge in incidents of aggression, which itself could lead to people being considered to be aggressive and at immediate risk of violence and therefore placed in seclusion. So the reality of an individual in a state of crisis, frightened and anxious, being on a psychiatric ward with masked strangers, unable to have family members visit, acting out from a place of fear and being led into a seclusion room is a stark representation of the brutal realities of how lockdown can be experienced by people who are already stigmatized with little agency or autonomy. Now, I got to hit the brakes here for just a minute because we're coming up on a commercial break, but this, this makes you question the psychiatric system. Okay, it makes me question the psychiatric system itself. And I'm not just trying to be contrary here. I think it was Charlie Reese years ago who pointed out, you know, um, psychiatry and psychology are quite different from, say, neurology, which studies the physical structures of the brain and nervous system. These are a little more abstract, and they've also been prone to abuse by the state. In fact, For hundreds of years now, psychiatry has kind of been how the state separates the uncomfortable, the dissident, from the rest of society. Well, they're crazy. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a really quick shout out here to um, an event coming up Friday night. This will be Friday, October 1st. And this is taking place at uh, Liberty Hall in Ogden, Utah. The Loving Liberty Network is welcoming Alex Newman to speak about We Can Save the Children. He's an award-winning international journalist, educator, author, and consultant. Very worth your time to check this out for my listeners in Utah. Um, if it's if you've got the time, it would be worth it to, to travel to Liberty Hall, beautiful facility, and hear Alex Newman speak. 
You can go to lovingliberty.net if you would like more information. So I'm sharing this article about how psychiatry will not save us from lockdown harm. And it's, it's an interesting study of, you know, what psychiatry can and cannot do and how it's being used during, you know, the lockdown crisis. But I think it's worth pointing out, psychiatry itself has always had kind of an uneasy partnership with the state. And I say uneasy just on the, on the part of the people who've been on the receiving end of that psychiatric care. I mean, we used to use really politically incorrect terms to describe people with mental health issues. Well, put them in the lunatic asylum and, and so forth. But the f- basic role of psychiatry was to take the people out of society who were making those in power uncomfortable, whether it be the mentally ill or just simply the dissident. Dr. Thomas Saz I'm going to try to spell his name correctly because I'm doing this from memory. Um, Thomas says, I think it's uh, S-Z-A-S-Z. Anyway, it's a different kind of spelling. He was himself a psychiatrist, and yet he was one of the most outspoken voices against psychiatry because of its tendency to be co-opted by the state. And if you think about the shift that's taken place in our society, once upon a time, if you found yourself in court, maybe you were facing criminal charges. If someone needed to be brought in to testify as to your character or as to the kind of person that you are, how sound of an individual are you? For the longest time, you would have called in a member of the clergy, your clergy, your pastor, your bishop would have been the one sitting on the stand, hand on the Bible, Other hand, raised to God, swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But nowadays, when someone is evaluated as to their character, as to their mental state, well, we bring in the mental health experts, and so it's likely you would call a psychiatrist or a psychologist to uh, sit and testify as to, well, this is what we know about Mr. Hyde based on our extensive testing and our evaluation of him. That's where our faith has gone. It's gone away from actual faith and more towards, you know, things that that work hand in hand with the state. And in this article here, again, this is from uh, Robert uh, Freudenthal from the Brownstone Institute. He talks about how the psychiatric system itself is a clear illustration of how medical power asserted itself throughout the lockdown. Monopolizing society is the only acceptable response to emotional distress. And while hospital chaplaincy services were withdrawn, religious institutions stopped doing in-person pastoral visits and other sources of community and support were closed, psychiatrists were able to continue seeing their patients in person, and that included doing home visits. For several months, he says, psychiatry was the only accessible source of support for people in crisis in the community. While simultaneously, those in psychiatric care and institutional settings had to bear the brunt of some of the strictest restrictions enacted across the whole of society. Next, he talks about psychiatric services as a solution to the lockdown mental health crisis. And he reminds us the goal of psychiatric treatment is to support people who have a mental illness to attain health, with health defined as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. 
Now, there are different models of mental health treatment with the biopsychosocial paradigm being dominant in most psychiatric services. However, they mostly have a shared goal of supporting the person to be more connected with their own reality or to be more, and to be more connected with the people around them. And that's exceptionally different, difficult to do when you're in a restricted society. Furthermore, most mental health services, at least in the inpatient setting, have a multidisciplinary model of treatment, with part of the treatment consisting of groups, activities, family work, occupational therapy, and supported trials of periods outside of the hospital prior to being discharged. But most of those treatments were removed and group programs suspended during the lockdowns. Now, that placed severe limitations on what mental health treatment could be provided. And it meant psychiatrists and mental health services had to rely more heavily on pharmacology as other treatment options were suspended or restricted. By the way, just as an aside to that, how many people do you know who are taking some kind of pharmaceutical mood elevator or mood regulator? I think the answer could be surprising. We are, we are a nation that's, that's pretty highly medicated. And for those who aren't on some pharmaceutical, you know, mood elevator, there's a lot of people self-medicating through alcohol, through other, you know, illicit substances. Very interesting. And the article here points out that there's clear evidence that antipsychotic prescribing increased for people in dementia during the lockdowns which itself is associated with an increase of mortality and other serious adverse effects, including stroke. Now, thankfully, in most parts of the world, the heavy lockdown restrictions have subsided, and it's now possible for community activities and group programs to restart. But in places where most group and community activities require demonstration of vaccine status, those who are unvaccinated are simply excluded from some of the key aspects of psychiatric treatment. Robert Freudenthal also says psychiatric services function along a medical model, and the institutions of psychiatry are part of the medical establishment. Many have warned against the wisdom of continued restrictions on the grounds of their mental health consequences. However, he says if part of the criticism of lockdowns is that they represent an expansion of medical overreach into the lives of the healthy, well, then some might oppose lockdowns from within a medical framework by citing their negative impacts on mental health as a reason for abandoning lockdowns and restrictions in the future. But it's never going to lead to a satisfactory dismantling of the lockdown infrastructure. Furthermore, he says the solution to distress is caused by closed services, missed education, lost income, poverty, debt, or coercive public health interventions. And he says the solution's not found in psychiatric services, particularly not in psychiatric services whose treatment options have been restricted to pharmacology-only approaches. Here, take this pill. Oh, look, it's a red one. I'll take that. (laughs) Of course, mental health services do provide essential support for many people. However, psychiatric services as part of our wider medical system will not by themselves provide adequate enough solutions to lockdown-related emotional distress. So Robert Freudenthal says to move on from lockdown isolationism and their associated distress, we will need to do more than expand the services and reach of yet another arm of the medical establishment. He says we'll need to look outside of the medical system to help us heal and to safeguard us against returning to a lockdown response to future crises. 
Of course, I'll have a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You can check this out for yourself. I strongly recommend the Brownstone Institute as a, a great resource for wrong thinkers. These are not partisan-driven people. They're not given to sensationalism in their writing. They're very principled, very well-sourced. I think this is good information. What you do with that information, well, that's up to you. But I put it out there, you know, with a recommendation that if you want a, a really solid take on what's going on, this is a good place to go. Got to take a break. We'll do that. We'll be back in just a few moments. Please visit my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And we'll be back in just a minute. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to my sponsor, lifesavingfood.com. You've heard me talk about some of the... Uh, Supply chain breakdowns that we're starting to see emerge. Some of the empty store shelves here and there. By the way, I did go to the grocery store yesterday. And I'm happy to report, I saw almost no empty shelves in the particular store that I went to. But uh, I'm, I'm really concerned about uh, potential food shortages. And just encourage you, if you want to you want to get your food storage program going or just bolster it. And make sure that you've got enough, not just for yourself, but maybe to help family or to help neighbors. This is a great time to do it. There is plenty of stock available. The prices are still reasonable. And here's the best part of all. If you click on the link to lifesavingfood.com, you can check out their website. You can see the starter food kits, the long-term supply, the survival kits. These are great for like 72-hour kits. Grab them and go. And you can save 20% on your order by entering the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. That's a special perk. It's for my listeners. It's a better deal than you would get if you went to ReadyWise themselves. And they're the, they're the producers of this, this food storage. Good quality stuff. 25-year shelf life. Lots of variety. Gluten-free options. Please check it out for yourself. If you feel inspired to, to make the move and, and make a purchase, use that coupon code HIDE to save yourself 20% on your purchase. Well, I've been watching with, uh, with some great concern the videos and the images coming out of Australia. And it said, there was, a, there was a pretty funny piece on the Babylon Bee, something about Australian hospitals now overwhelmed by people being beaten by the police for not following COVID protocol. And so, yeah, and it's not COVID that's overwhelming the hospital. It's, it's the police, you know, cracking down on these people who uh, strayed from their home or were outside without permission from the state. Oh, it's it's scary. You know, the what's happening in Australia is, is scary enough for the people who live there, but it, it doesn't bode well for the future of freedom in other places. Because if it can happen someplace like Australia, which used to be held up as, you know, the example of, see, you can take away people's guns and nothing bad ever happens. Mm. We just had to wait a few years to, to see what kind of temptation would present itself to the people in power. Got a great article here from James Bolt. And this was uh, written on spikedonline.com. 
in which he says the writing is on the wall for anyone who has the courage to raise their eyes. And that is what's happening in Australia isn't about learning how to live safely with a particular virus. It's about learning how to live under authoritarian rule. The article's titled, Zero COVID Has Torn Australia Apart. And he says, back in the summer, as the rest of the world was opening up, state after state in Australia started to impose new restrictions to deal with a handful of COVID cases. He says, it turned us into a global laughing stock, but no one is laughing now. Time was when, even in Melbourne, we could chuckle at the absurdity of our COVID rules. We were told we could remove our face masks, still mandatory indoors and outdoors, in order to drink a coffee, but not to drink a beer. We were also told that if we lived with five other adults, we were not all allowed or not allowed to all leave the house in one group. Indoors, we were no risk to each other. Outside, we were apparently a viral Petri dish. But he says laughter has turned into anger. After over 230 days of hard lockdown, whatever was left of Melbourne's social fabric has gone. And the city has been rocked by weeks of protest and violence. On September 17th, the Victorian government announced that it would be mandating vaccinations for the construction industry. Now, it gave construction workers six days to get their first jab or be banned from working. Unsurprisingly, not all construction workers were pleased about this. And they took their anger out on their union the following morning by protesting outside its offices. Now, the union bizarrely claimed that protest was made up of far-right and neo-Nazi agitators. And just as bizarrely, the Victorian government then decided to close the entire construction industry for two weeks. Even the vaccinated were banned from working. Well, the protesters were back in bigger numbers the next day, drawing in people from many other walks of life. And the police took a very hard line. Videos of police brutality have swept the world. An old lady was pushed to the ground and pepper sprayed in the face. A man peacefully talking to police officers at a train station was tackled from behind by another officer, his head smashing into the hard ground. Police have fired rubber bullets at protesters, too. But the violence hasn't only come from the police, though. Another video circulating online shows a single line of police officers standing shoulder to shoulder, attempting to stop an unruly crowd of hundreds. Well, the crowd broke through, and numerous officers were hospitalized following the chaos that day. He says, this is the price of our victory against COVID. Yes, our COVID deaths are low, far lower than the rest of the world. But how much longer can we live like this? Well, Melbournians have been ordered to live like this until 26 October at the earliest. That's when Melbourne's sixth lockdown is scheduled to end. Though you'd be lucky to find a single person who actually thinks it'll end on that day. By then, Melbourne will have been locked down for longer than any other city on the planet. Now, James Bolt says, look, we got here by chasing the goal of zero COVID. The successes of 2020 went to our leaders' heads. They believed they could do what no other country has done, that is, eliminate the virus. And this mindset was what drove Melbourne into lockdown on August 5th after recording just eight cases. And it's been in lockdown ever since. Now, there are some signs of hope, however. Victoria State Premier Daniel Andrews has acknowledged the Delta variant is too virulent to be eliminated. He now says Victorians will have to learn to live with COVID. 
Now, James Bolt says Andrew's words are promising, but his actions don't match them. Melbourne is not learning to live with the virus. It's learning to live with authoritarianism. Living with the virus means being allowed to gather in groups, to be with each other, to be with other humans, to enjoy all that life has to offer. Music, art, film, sport, going out at night, all of these activities are still either heavily restricted or outright banned. On what planet is complying with a 9 p.m. curfew living with COVID? Now, those who support the restrictions always say that we haven't given out enough vaccines to be able to live with COVID yet. But Victoria won't meet its uh, vaccination targets until sometime in November. Only then will people be able to go to each other's houses or take their masks off in public. So while the dream of zero COVID is dead on paper, we are still trying to contain COVID at all costs. People who've already been pushed beyond the brink are suffering under draconian restrictions on every aspect of life. As Australians see their fellow countrymen being pepper sprayed, surrounded by shuttered businesses, they despair at the legacy that zero COVID has left for their once great nation. Again, this is from James Bolt, who's a producer with Sky News Australia. Now, look, I, I know there's there's not a lot that you and I can do at this moment, you know, about us. It's not like, hey, let's go liberate the Australians. Love to visit there someday. But, you know, I, I don't I don't think uh, a liberation um, from without is, is going to be the solution. Frankly, most of us are still trying to keep our own liberty, you know, wherever we happen to be. And, and we're doing poorly, not for lack of effort, but just simply it's hard to find enough people who... <laughs> Who are willing to to stand? Nobody wants to be unpopular. Nobody wants to to be, you know, that person who who speaks the truth that people just don't want to acknowledge. And by that, I mean the kind of truth of of you know, if the vaccine works so well, why is it that even very highly vaccinated countries like the UK, like Israel, are seeing incredible spikes? In the spread of COVID. Now, this latest outbreak, if we can use that word, or the latest, uh, you know, dramatic increase appears to be tapering off. It's kind of a cyclical thing, like we saw last year. And we'll probably see cases rise again as we come into the holiday months and the cold weather months where people are primarily kept indoors and in the company of others. All I know is the, the people in authority who have thought that, you know, we have to we have to get on top of this and control this. They, they still believe their own press releases. They still believe they can control a virus. If we put the right words on paper and get enough people to obey, we can beat this thing. They can't. And I'm not saying that because, you know, we're throwing our hands in the air and admitting defeat. But let's be clear. We're, we're dealing with a virus, and viruses will do what viruses have always done. They will spread throughout a population, and when enough exposure has been accomplished to where the population has built up natural or herd immunity, at that point, you know, it becomes endemic. You just learn to live with it. The, the yearly flu, remember when we used to have that? Yeah, flu season. I don't know if we're going to have it, or if we're going to even call it that anymore, but um, because of the flu... You know, people, you know, some would get a flu shot. Others just take precautions. And, you know, we didn't put masks on our faces. We didn't strictly distance ourselves six feet from everybody. People took supplements and they ate right and they they slept, you know, for the appropriate amount of time. They took better care of themselves. That's how you deal with a virus. At any rate... 
We're going to talk about something that's going to blow your mind at just the other side of our break. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah at 619 South Bluff Street. These are the folks you want to talk to if you are looking to secure a home loan in the state of Utah. Whether it's a reverse mortgage, traditional loan, VA loan, maybe just refinancing your existing home loan, talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I have something to share with you. I think this is going to blow a few people's minds, but I'm going to start with a question here. What trait do many of the greatest human beings who ever lived have in common? The answer is all of them discovered who they were by running away for a time. I know we think of it as kind of a negative thing. Run away, why, that sounds like something a kid would do. You know, I didn't, they didn't get what they wanted for supper, and now they're going to run away. I won't eat that liver and onions. I'd rather run away from home. Paul Rosenberg has an excellent essay explaining how facing the world on our own can actually be a pivotal experience in helping us learn who we really are. This is an essay called The Strangest Secret, Why You Should Run Away. And he says one of the more instructive experiences of his life occurred when he was a teenager, barely 16 years old. He says, my dad, whom I had previously considered to be incredibly overprotective, put me on a cross-country bus and sent me alone to visit my grandmother some 2,000 miles away. He says, for two straight days, I was on my own, surrounded by people I had never met, in places I'd never been, and thrown into situations that I never could have expected. And that experience did something to me. I learned about a strange world and how to get along in it, alone, with no one to run to. Now, he says, the benefits I felt from this trip didn't have to do with traveling. This wasn't about getting from point A to point B. This was about wandering through the unknown. And he says, that was an idea that rather bothered me. Paul Rosenberg says, during my youth, there was a common idea that moving around was a bad thing. You were supposed to stay in your place unless you had a good reason to do otherwise. And people who moved around were considered suspicious and even dangerous. But he says, the benefit that I felt from wandering clashed with what I'd been taught. He says, when I returned home from this journey, I returned to the regular American distractions of sports and school and all the other shiny objects that grab at young people's minds. But he says, I never forgot that strange feeling that struck with, that stuck with me from that journey. Sometime later, he says, I came across a passage in Shakespeare's Two Gentlemen of Verona. I would rather entreat you to see the wonders of the world abroad than living dully, sluggerized at home, wear out your youth in shapeless idleness. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, that wasn't precisely what I felt on my adventure, but it was close. And it would be some years before I would travel seriously, but I decided right then and there that I would make it my life's goal to see the world. And he says, that experience, which I've come to call the strangest secret, is not unlike Earl Nightingale's message of the same name. The same name, rather. Both concepts lead to a rich and fulfilling life. 
Now, he says, at some point after I finished school, my intellectual curiosity bloomed, and I started reading in earnest. And as I did, I found out that other people had discovered value in wandering, much like I had. He says, soon enough, I discovered that I had only seen half of the picture. The actual virtue I had felt was about much more than wandering. And he says, eventually, as my mind matured through study and experience, I began to understand what this strange virtue really was. And then, to my deep surprise, I began to, d- to find that this odd virtue, commonly considered to be an undesirable trait in my youth, was present in the lives of the greatest men and women of all time. He says, the first people I found it in were the great spiritual leaders, Abraham, <clears throat> Moses, Buddha, Jesus, the apostles, and Confucius. He says, I found it fascinating that all of them partook of the same ritual. Later, I found more religious leaders that had done the same, Martin Luther, Jan Hus, Thomas Aquinas, and others. Over time, I learned that the world's great philosophers and poets had also been initiated into this strange rite. People like Diogenes, Pythagoras, Sappho, Cicero, and the great John Locke. The men that shaped Western civilization also shared in it. Peter Abelard, the founder of modern learning. John of Salisbury, who defined the rule of law, Stephen Langton, the author of the Magna Carta, Christopher Columbus, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine, and others. In fact, he says, if you keep looking, you will even find that many of the world's greatest authors, musicians, and inventors make the same list. Victor Hugo, Daniel Defoe, Frederick Chopin, Leo Tolstoy, John Dos Passos, also George Orwell, Albert Einstein, and Nikola Tesla. Exactly what is this transforming, empowering, and strange secret? It's this. It's the virtue of running away. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, look, if you were raised at all like I was, the idea that running away is a virtue will trouble you. And he says, I'm sorry about that, but when you find the one thing that the greatest men and women of history have in common, you might want to examine it, regardless of how it makes you feel. None of us lives entirely by ourselves, nor should we. But living with others inevitably leads to a web of expectations imposed upon us, a web that quickly engulfs every aspect of our lives. Now, these people aren't necessarily doing anything wrong. This is simply what happens among groups of people. They learn to expect things of you, and you learn to expect things of them. But this web of expectations also locks us in place, and because of it, we too easily come to see ourselves as playing a certain type of role in life. And this is what the great men and women broke out of. Do you remember how many times Jesus criticized people for being hypocrites? What he really called these people was actors, as in playing a role on stage. Separation frees us from the roles we've grown accustomed to. By running away, you are stripping off the accumulations of your lifetime and you find yourself underneath. Now, he clarifies here, I'm not telling you to abandon your family, of course. Obligations to spouses and children are not things to be tossed aside. But he says, I am telling you that at some point in your personal development, breaking away from your web of expectations is critical. If Moses and Buddha and Abelard and Sappho and Franklin couldn't release their talents without it, you probably won't either. Besides, once you get over the terror of it, you'll be forever glad you did. You will reclaim the real you from the expectations, even demands, of the people who've surrounded you. And in time, even those people will probably be glad you ran away. Now, they'll more than likely freak out at first, but if you come back a better person, 
they may get to like him or her better than the old fits our expectations you. He says, I have a friend I'll call Pete who desperately wanted to expand his life but just wasn't getting any traction. After multiple frustrations, he decided to move himself and his young family for an indefinite time from the American Midwest to a small town in the southern U.S., somewhere entirely different and a thousand miles distance. Distant, rather. He contacted an acquaintance at the destination and asked for some help finding arrangements. He and his wife took a brief scouting trip, and they just moved, without even a clear job offer. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, years later, my friend recounted, it was a frightening adventure, but that without it, he would never have clarified his understanding of himself. Too much of what he had been doing and thinking was intertwined with the desires and opinions of others. He needed to be someplace where, in the words of an old bluesman, he was nothing to nobody. And within a few years, the man's life had indeed changed, and very much to the better. Somehow, sometime, you need to face the world as nothing to nobody and reassess who you are. Now, maybe the idea of running away still troubles you. And he says, if so, that will be your issue to work through. I can't do it for you, and I wouldn't try. All I'm telling you is that there is something very important here, something of pivotal importance to the best men and women of history. What you do with it is your choice. Now, if that makes you feel a little bit uneasy to consider Paul Rosenberg's advice to to run away, or at least to, to go out into the world where nobody knows who you are, where you're nothing to nobody, and to figure out who you really are and what you really stand for, If it makes you uneasy, that's actually a good sign. Because it probably means that you need to get to the root of who you are. I have a little bit simpler method. If you you feel like I just can't, you know, go out there and wander in the wilderness like some did. um, You know, a good starting point to get you in the mindset where you're you're able to strip away those layers of expectations and, and, and really understand who you are. It just involves find a quiet afternoon where you can get away from everything electronic, away from people, away from noise. Some place in nature would be good. Take a pencil, take something to write on, and sit down and just discover what you stand for, who you are. Start by listing the blessings in your life. What is right with your existence? What do you know about yourself? It's It's tough to get started, but once you get started, you'll be surprised how the thoughts flow. You'll be surprised what you learn about yourself, and you may just have a little bit of inspiration about the areas and the directions that you ought to be heading. Give it a try. Give me some feedback. Let me know how it works. Oh, let me know if we need to send out the search party, too. This is The Brian Hyde Show.